Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting. We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. Hi, Shula. Hi. I am so excited to talk to you here at ACMG. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you're doing here? Sure. Um, so my name is Shula Jaron. Um, I work for a company called Nema Metrics. Um, and we make um, animal models for functional testing of rare genetic diseases. And so we're here at a- ACMG um, getting to know people, learning um, more about the field and, and finding out kind of where some places are that, that our technology can fit. And what's your role? Are you you a geneticist? Uh Are you, so how'd you get, how'd you get into this company? Yeah. So my role is actually in business development, although I am a scientist by training and have um, worked in both academia and industry for a long time. And so my roots are really in science. um, And I came to the company because um, I saw that it was a really interesting technology um, that you know, I'm, I'm kind of a problem solver by nature and um, saw that there was some opportunity to take this technology to um, be impactful in human health. So, you know, the company originally um, was doing sales of uh, tools into scientific research market. And um, we've, we've kind of packaged it all together to, like I said, to kind of have a bit bigger impact on human health. So from a rare disease perspective, I mean, one of the very first questions um, a foundation or an organization um, for rare disease is asked, do you have, an, do you have a mouse model? Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, I, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 37, didn't jump into this world um, until, about, you know, 38, just shortly after my diagnosis. And I just, like, a mouse model? I, I mean, a mouse on the runway? Like, it, it, I, I really wasn't sure yeah. what this meant. Uh, can you explain to me animal models and mm-hmm. and the role they play in genetics now? Sure. So um, animal models are used in um, human health uh, disease research quite a bit. 
Um, they help us understand what's going on in human bodies um, without having to do testing on humans themselves. At least at first, right? At first, yeah. Right, absolutely. before we know whether they're safe or not. Yeah, and so they're used, I mean, they're definitely used when we're looking at um, new drugs and testing them on animal models before they go into human trials, of course. But even before um, we even have an inkling of a, a drug compound that might be effective. We use animal models just to understand the the basis of disease, how disease works, um, what are the mechanisms inside um, of a living creature that are are impacting that disease, what, what leads to disease, essentially. And what types of animals do you test on? So, or would one test on? Well... So we are doing something a little bit unique. Um, many There are many different types of animal models, uh, but we actually work primarily with C. elegans. And, um, what are those? <laughs> C. elegans are a really interesting uh, little creature. They're microscopic worms, okay. essentially. Okay. Um, and they're great models for, genet- for many genetic diseases. They can um, model about 80% of human disease. And they're fan- they're fantastic because um, they're small. They have a short lifespan. Um, they are they. They're typically not pets, so typically we're not, not really pets. upsetting. Yeah, and exactly. And so um, people are are more comfortable often with using these kind of microscopic animals than they are with working on mice or even, you know, there's some work that gets done on larger animals, but we're yeah, really— Even up to dog models, yeah. right? Yeah, and and the ni- the other nice thing about C. elegans is that it's really fast. So we can um, make a genetic modification in a C. elegans and then study how that modification impacts disease um, and then even take that model and look at uh, the impact of pharmaceutical compounds. Different treatments, yeah, right? Yeah, and we can do that all within a couple of months. Um, yeah, whereas, that is very fast. Whereas an, uh, mice models can take um, up to a year just to create the model, and then the testing can take a very long time. So these little organisms, they have systems that are similar enough to ours mm-hmm. where it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So they um, they are there's some diseases that can't be studied with C. elegans, and so we also work with zebrafish. Okay, because they're um, they have organs. C. elegans don't have all organ systems that humans have and, and zebrafish do. So in some cases, we, we use zebrafish, but for many, many diseases, especially neurological diseases, um, C. elegans are an, um, an excellent model. Now, zebrafish are also pretty efficient, though, correct? Mm-hmm. They are. They're um, more difficult to work with. They're more akin to mice um, in terms of how long it takes to make modifications and study them, although they are simple, still simpler than, than mice. Okay. That's great. I mean, so I, I am always, again, fascinated. My specific disease state, I learned after not having an answer to, do you have a mouse model? I learned quickly that actually, yes, we do. Mm-hmm. We are the famous Obi Obi mouse. Okay. So, um, and I, I've also hear about, uh, zebrafish and lipodystrophy and, um, it seems really unfair to me that I couldn't have little Andra zebra fish at my house. But, uh, I mean, that seems like a little lipodystrophy fish would be awesome. But 
Um, not everyone agreed with me. So unfortunately, unfortunately, or fortunately for my pets, nobody has uh, like no none of my animals have lipodystrophy yeah. at home. And you know, one of the things that um, because we are we are the world leader in um, C. elegans um, making C. elegans transgenics, and um, one of the interesting things that we do is we actually we don't just make a um, so we primarily focus on epilepsy. And so we don't just make a general epilepsy model. We actually make a very specific patient model. So we look at um, the genetics of a specific patient and put their genes and variants into uh, a worm and study that worm for that particular patient. Many diseases are very heterogeneous, correct? So would it be interesting to see for that particular variant... Yeah, and so there's um, exactly so uh, there are de novo mutations that occur. So where nobody's seen a particular mutation in any other human, and so that person comes in with a variant, and that variant is called um, a variant of uncertain significance. They get they it gets identified, um, but they don't know if that variant has really caused the disease or what the um, progression of the disease from that variant is going to look like. Okay. Um, And then oftentimes, because they've never seen that variant before, they won't know exactly what uh, therapeutics to try for that patient. And so it is very um, interesting to put that particular variant into one of our models and study it. De novo can also mean new in a particular disease state that is already known. Mm-hmm. De novo can mean new to the family, correct? Yeah. So can you explain the definition of de novo? So de novo just simply means um, a variant that is seen in a, a person that wasn't seen in either of their parents. Excellent. Yeah, yeah that's really helpful. Uh, and what about, you uh, use, use the term transgenics. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So a transgenic um, is is what we call a animal that has had some modification to their genes in their genome. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Just because I'm going to use you as a dictionary, can you explain what knockout means? Sure. So a knockout is um, a animal where we have removed um, either a portion or an entire gene from that animal's genome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I'm, I'm just fascinated. Yeah. And, and since animal models seem to really be part of yeah. exactly what you do. And so we, you know, we often will make a knockout to understand what, um, what that gene does in a human. And so, um, you know, for example, if you have a, um, we, we talk about disease genes. I don't know if you've heard that term before, mm-hmm, right? Absolutely. And, and so one of the ways we know that those genes are involved in disease is that we make a knockout. So we remove that gene from the animal. And then we see, and, and actually, and I should say that there are many mo- types of models that people use. They don't always use animals. Sometimes they use cells. Right. Um, and so we can we do a lot of that kind of work in cells where we remove the gene and then see what happens to the cell. Does it die? Does it um, tr- have trouble doing something like um, reproducing itself? 
Um, if we look at an animal model, you know, does it have trouble respirating or um, in our case, this little C. elegans worm, um, what it spends most of its time doing is eating and pooping. And so we say, okay, does it have trouble um, ingesting food or 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 eliminating (laughs) food? Okay. I mean, it's very fascinating to me um, the advancements we've made. It certainly sounds like C. elegans is a a large, a great advancement Mm -hmm. in, in testing. Is that are they new or has, have we used them for a long time? So Sidney Brenner is sort of the grandfather of C. elegans as a model. And um, I believe it was in the 60s that he sort of founded that as a, as a model for studying um, different diseases, different human conditions. Um, and so it's been about that long since we've been using it. Um, but it's really been the advent of... Um, CRISPR technology that has allowed sort of the explosion into kind of genetics um, research using most animal models, actually. As we're learning more and more about these advancements, how do you think that is going to change the future of how we look at rare disease and how we treat rare disease? Well, I, I mean, I would say that we're at the forefront of that. And so I can speak very definitively because I, I think that it, it is going to um, drastically change what we do. Because as we see, um, as more and more people get sequenced, we're finding out that um, even within groupings of disease where you say Alzheimer's or, you know, a, or even certain cancers, right, there's not just one um, genetic mutation that causes that. And so we, we fi- we're finding more and more that each individual is unique yes. and can be considered rare. Um, right. <laughs> rare in their rare disease. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and so we have to um, be looking in a much more personalized way at how do we define an individual's person disease and how do we treat that um, and so that's exactly what we're trying to do is, and as I said, we, we take a, a specific person's um, genetic code and put that into our model. Um, and, I, and I think that's really where um, all of the, the research and especially um, therapeutics need, need to go. So we have listeners, um, a wide variety of listeners, uh, and and you've done such a great job helping me understand some of these terms uh, in a way that that I will remember them. What can a patient who's really seeking um, some help, I mean, maybe they don't have a diagnosis or they they absolutely feel like they they need a treatment faster. What what can we do to help partner with you to help move the process forward? Sure. So, so right now um, we are in sort of beta test form, and so we're working with a, a very select grouping of um, clinics and clinicians to test out the system and um, get it ready for a, sort of a wider audience. Starting in early 2020, we're going to be looking for um, additional uh, clinics and clinicians who are interested in working with us, and they can easily um, contact me directly. It's shula.jaron at nemometrics.com. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, And so 
you know, my, my, I guess my best piece of advice is to stay um, informed about what possible, you know, options there are where technology is going and, and definitely um, help keep your physician informed about it too. Yeah, because you're, it's just a little bit removed, once removed from the patient instead of, you know, like the satellite system happening out that seems like magic to me still. Like I don't, you know, like you would never be able to have any form or of contact with a scientist who's working in in these labs. Right. But if you're working directly with physicians and mm-hmm. they're working directly with the patient, it, it seems like it's a closer relationship than it used to be. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's our goal because our system is is fast and easy to use. And so we we are trying to build it on the timeline that a patient and a physician needs. So rather than saying, I want to learn about my disease. Tell me in in the next five years. Right. Right. We want to. We're trying to do this within months, so that um, that we're on that the patient's timeline. So it's actually affecting the patient versus the disease state. That's yeah. That is our goal. That's really exciting. Yeah. That and, is very exciting. And we do work with. Um, we have some really close ties with some um, patient advocacy groups. Uh, specifically, as I mentioned before, we're focused right now in epilepsy. And so we're working with some of the um, epilepsy patient advocacy groups. That's great. Um, keeping kind of a two-way communication, you know, staying informed about what their needs are, making sure that what we're developing is going to meet those needs. We hear this over and over and over. No matter who you are, these kind of partnerships help progress um, information, knowledge for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're super important, um, and I and I think although we can't, we we don't intend to ever be um, a direct to consumer, so direct to patient type of product. Right. It's really really important that we understand what people are needing, really. Exactly. You know, um, what endpoints are important to them, right? Yeah. So that you can really tailor how you're looking at treatments. Absolutely. In these animals. Yep. That's excellent. Really appreciate you um, sitting and, and and your patience in providing some definitions for us. But again, I think it's it's all about providing information in a way that people feel like they can absorb it and and then make an impact. Yeah. So thanks yeah, it's a been, lot. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great. Enjoy the rest of your time here. Thank you. <laughs> This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics Annual Clinical Genetics Meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel. Feel.